Hi, this is Pastor Scott Stroud, and I'd like to thank you for joining us online today as you're watching this sermon series. I know that COVID has had a big impact on the church, and many people have been viewing from home uh, for three years now. And so, if you're one of those, thank you for coming and interacting with us online. But I would also like to extend a personal invitation to come and check us out here at Elam. And we know that fellowship is very important. According to the Bible, we should not uh, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And as you're thinking about, can you come now and, and venture out and join us uh, in, in person, uh, we would like to invite you and welcome you into the fellowship aspect of our worship time. Hope to see you soon on some Sunday at 10 a.m. going pretty well for Jesus and the disciples. People were being healed. Thousands were being fed through miraculous multiplication of bread and fish. Dead people were being raised back to life. The disciples even witnessed Jesus taking control over nature by walking on the water and calming a storm. And not only was Jesus doing these things, but he had also passed power and authority onto his disciples so that they could do similar things. In short, the mission was succeeding. The gospel message was getting out. And if the disciples were anything like I am, they were probably patting themselves on the back for their great decision, having left everything and following Jesus. There were sacrifices and there were hardships to be sure. However, they were part of the inner circle of the Messiah, and so it was well worth it. And during Jesus' teachings, he had been talking about a kingdom. A kingdom that had come, and a kingdom in the future. And so at the very least, they were going to be advisors in that inner circle of the king. And then we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus lays out clearly something that he had been hinting at since the beginning. He reveals them to them in no uncertain terms what's going to take place in less than nine months. And this revelation sends shockwaves through the group. And this morning we're going to be unpacking this dialogue and applying some of the lessons to our own lives as we consider the path that Jesus had set before his disciples, a path to the cross. And so from this moment on we see a major shift in Jesus' ministry. He begins to withdraw from the limelight. And we don't see him after this teaching large crowds, but rather he turns the majority of his attention to his disciples, to this inner group. These are going to be leaders in the fledgling church. He's preparing them. And he begins this season with a question. It's a test for the disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? Essentially, he was saying, you've seen me minister over these last two years. You've seen how the crowds have responded. You see how I've been rejected by the religious leaders. And so who then do people think that I am? And so the disciples respond with a few options that they've observed. Some say you are John the Baptist. This was actually Herod's belief. And we see this in Matthew 14, too. He claimed that Jesus had died, or John had died, 
and that now he was back in the form of Jesus, and that's why he had power, because he'd been to heaven. Some say Elijah. This belief came from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And so they knew that Jesus was a prophet because he was doing these powerful miracles. However, they didn't think that he was the Messiah because in their mind, the Messiah was supposed to restore Israel to its glory. And Jesus had done virtually nothing to free them from the Romans. And so this can't be the Messiah. Or some say that Jeremiah or one of the other prophets Again, precursors to the Messiah, but not the Messiah himself. And this question is very relevant to our culture today. In fact, if you want to start an interesting conversation with a friend or family member or a coworker, ask them this question. Who do you think Jesus was? Barna Research Group did a study in 2015 and asked Americans that very question. And here are some of the things that the poll revealed. First, most Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. They don't necessarily believe this because they've read the Bible. They mainly believe it based on movies and media. Movies like The Da Vinci Code or even television shows like South Park depict Jesus as a real person as opposed to a mythical person like Thor in the movies, uh, the Marvel movies. Therefore, 92% believe that he was a historical figure. Second, among millennials, whose current age range is 27 to 42, less than half believe that Jesus was God. And although 6 out of 10 Americans say that they have a committed life to Jesus, they've committed themselves to him, they're very conflicted as to how one is saved, whether by Jesus alone or by works. Over half of Americans believe they will get to heaven because they have lived a good life. Things get worse worldwide. Although Muslims believe in a literal historic Jesus, they deny that Jesus died on the cross or that he was raised from the dead. They do believe that Jesus will return, but that he will come back as a Muslim to revive Islam. Orthodox Judaism holds a similar view. Again, they deny the resurrection and the claim that Jesus made about himself, that he was the Messiah. Hindus believe that Jesus was a wise teacher, and strangely, because they believe in multiple gods, they have no problem adding Jesus to the list of gods. However, they reject his exclusive claim of being the only way to the Father. Buddhists enjoy Jesus' teaching, especially the ones about loving one's neighbor, but they don't believe that he was the savior of the world as he claimed to be. And although 32% of the world's population claims to be Christian, that number is very doubtful, especially in light of Matthew 7:14, where Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few find it. And so we see Peter's response to Jesus' question in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, when Jesus reveals what being the Christ entails, it's clear that even Peter has a misconception about who Jesus is. 
Part of being the Messiah that the disciples had missed was the fact that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things and then to be killed. Imagine this as a campaign slogan if somebody was running for president. If you vote for me and join my mission, my team, at the end of the term, I will be rejected, tortured, executed, and then all of you will be on the run for the rest of your life, and eventually you will be caught and tortured and executed. You'd never vote for something like that. The major themes for most leaders are change, victory, improvement, and the like. This was clearly captured in the theme song selected by Bill Clinton while he was on the campaign trail. It was the song Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. The chorus says, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop, it'll soon be here. It'll be here better than before. Yesterday's gone, yesterday's gone. Now that's a message we can get behind, right? Change for tomorrow, something better coming. Not this message of, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer a bunch and then die. Consider the symbols that represent world religions. The symbol for Islam is the five-pointed star and the crescent. The five points of the star represent the five pillars of Islam, central to their faith, and the crescent, moon, represents the power of the creator. The main symbol for Buddhism is the Dharma wheel, or the wheel of the law. It denotes the Buddha's first sermon in the forest of Sarnath, where he set forth this dharma, this law. The Star of David, which symbolizes Judaism, was first thought to be used on shields for King David and for King Solomon's armies. And it signifies victory or Zionism, the people of Israel rising up again. And then we have the cross, right? Think about the electric chair. What if, for some reason, that form of execution, the electric chair, went totally out of style, okay? It was banned in all of the world. And now fast forward 200 years, and you begin to walk around in society, and everywhere you see electric chairs dangling from people's ears in the form of jewelry, or on necklaces, or hanging in church buildings, right? We think it'd be pretty odd. What's up with all the electric chairs? And yet if somebody from 2,000 years ago in Palestine were to take a time travel trip to now and see all of the crosses, they would be very confused. What's up with all the crosses? This form of execution, this excruciating suffering. And that was where Jesus was heading. His flesh was going to be torn open right in front of a gawking and mocking crowd. It almost seems like the disciples missed the next statement that Jesus made, and on the third day be raised. It seems like all they hear is, and be killed, right? Stop listening after, and be killed. And the world seems to miss this point as well, the resurrection. English evolutionary biologist uh, and author Richard Dawkins calls the teaching on the cross divine child abuse. He goes on to state his belief about the resurrection, and I quote, Presumably, what happens to Jesus is what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. 
Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well-documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. This is from a guy who was raised in the church, by the way. And I could dispute Dawkins' statement about um, this proof for Jesus' resurrection, but I'll save that for some other time. The point is, without the resurrection, the cross would be as tragic as other world leaders' assassinations. And so Jesus was saying that there was something after the suffering and the death. There was a profound reason for his death. He had come to fulfill the law by living this sinless life and then pay the penalty for ours not having kept the law. And the result was resurrection. The result was life. And not just a better life for now, The result was a payment for eternal life. But Peter's not having any of it. He rebukes Jesus. Imagine that, rebuking the Lord, right? This shall never happen to you. I think what he's really saying is that we're not going to let it happen to you. And it's almost like he's scolding a younger brother, right? Who's afraid of the monster under the bed. That can't happen to you. No, I'm here to protect you. Don't worry, right? But then we see Jesus' rebuke. And I've been called a lot of things in my life as a pastor. Arrogant, uncaring, a liar, a heretic, a bad preacher. You name it, someone's probably said it. But nobody has ever called me Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now remember, this is right after Jesus had praised Peter. For this revelation, being so in tune with the Holy Spirit that he heard that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And let's break down this harsh critique a little bit. First, Jesus says, get behind me. Notice, actually, he actually turns away from Peter to the other disciples because Peter had pulled him aside. Get behind me. He actually, you know, Peter, is, he's basically saying, get in the back seat. I'm driving. And it's interesting in the original language here because that phrase, if we said it literally, means go to the back. Almost like get to the back of the class, right? And so Peter goes from star pupil to sitting in the corner with a dunce cap on. But I don't want you to be too critical of Peter this morning because everyone within the shot of my voice has at one time or another in their Christian walk done something where Jesus could have said, get behind me, Satan. We've all stood up and confidently affirmed something and then found out we were dead wrong. We found out we were wrong about this circumstance. We found out we were on the side of the devil opposing Jesus rather than supporting him. And I don't think Peter does it on purpose here, and we typically don't do it on purpose. It's just that we speak without understanding. We speak without understanding God's word, and we speak without understanding God's ways. And we end up saying things that are incorrect. Things that actually do more damage than good in regard to to people's Christian walk. This actually happened to Job, one of the most righteous men who ever lived. And so he's talking about how he's suffering and what God must be thinking. And what is God's first words to him? Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? 
I've read that many times, that whole section on Job, and I'm like, it wasn't that bad, was it? You know? And yet God is like, you've obscured my plans. He may as well have said, get behind me, Satan. Right? The next thing he says, you are a hindrance. This was Peter's main mistake. He was a hindrance to the cross. And that word hindrance we translate into hindrance from the Greek actually means a trap stick. And so what people would do if they wanted to slow down the progress of an oncoming enemy or whatever it might be, they would take a sapling and they would stretch it over the path and they would tie it to another tree. And as you're walking along, you don't see it, but you snag your foot and you fall. And so, you are a trap to me, Peter. You're slowing my progress. And this was all probably a huge shock to Peter because he was actually trying to help the situation. But in his spiritual blindness, he had switched sides to the enemy's camp. This is common in religion. The Jewish leaders had succumbed to it. In fact, Jesus told his disciples later on in John 16, 2, that a time was coming when anyone who killed them thought they would be doing a favor to God. Talk about switching sides. Go and kill one of the disciples. And so where was it that Peter got thrown off? Jesus puts his uh, finger on the problem in verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. In this phrase, we see the problem, but we also see the solution, don't we? How do I avoid becoming a trapstick to Jesus? Well, I set my mind on the things of God and not the things of men. Peter was focused mainly on protecting Jesus. He was focused on a long-term ministry. No, we don't want this to be cut short. This is going so well, right? He was focused on success. He didn't recognize the fact that the cross was part of the ministry. In fact, it was the main point. And so Jesus is leading you to Jerusalem. He's leading you to the cross. He's calling you to take up your cross and follow him. But there are many stick traps along the way. Satan's trying to make you stumble. He doesn't want you to take up your cross. He doesn't want you to embrace the suffering. And so he's put many things in your way to try to trip you up. And the sad thing is, is that many of the traps have been set by well-meaning Christian people who are using the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom of God. As I wrap up today, I think the best thing we can do is to shine a little light on the path. Because if you see the strict stick trap, you're going to jump over it, right? And so these traps, we can highlight them this morning so that we don't fall into the same situation that Peter did. The first one that I see is success. Actually, Jesus responds to these in the later part of the chapter here. In verse 24, we see him say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so what is biblical success? Well, it's connected to denial of self and taking up your cross. 
If your main idea of a successful life is financial or material, then you are probably stumbling along the path. You've probably caught your foot on that trap. It's so common. We want a happy life. We want to be secure and successful. We don't want to suffer. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to sign up for that. The next one we see in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the trap is comfort and security. Christians will suffer in this life. And at the very least, they will suffer in their flesh as they resist sin. In fact, I think that's the most common suffering out of all the suffering. It's suffering to resist sin in your life. Your flesh wants that stuff. It feels good. <laughs> I've heard a lot of parents say, drugs are terrible. You know, don't try drinking, you'll hate it. No, you'll love it. That's the problem. You might not like how sick you feel afterwards, but nobody becomes an alcoholic because they hate it. They love it. Feels good. All those drugs, all that promiscuous sex, all the things, it's wonderful. But it's the flesh. And it's a suffering to resist those things. Your flesh suffers. That's what it means, taking up your cross. And then finally in verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so the final trap is control. We want control of everything. We forget we're not the boss. God's the boss, right? And many have stumbled on that. They don't want to follow after somebody else. Frank Sinatra said it the best, right? I did it my way, right? That's what most people at the end of their life, they look back and, at least I did it my way. Well, that's why your life's such a mess. And so if you're sitting here this morning wondering if you've ever been a hindrance to the cross, I would encourage you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. Because most of you won't know it. Peter didn't know it. He thought, I'm doing such a great job pulling Jesus aside here and helping out the situation. He's probably looking to me to protect him anyways. It had to be revealed to him with a harsh statement. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe even recently. You're like, I thought I was doing the right thing, but then suddenly it's pretty clear I was a hindrance to the cross. I was actually fighting against God instead of working for him. But notice here that Peter doesn't run home and cry to his wife, Jesus, embarrass me in front of my peers, right? No. He kept going, kept learning, kept loving Jesus. And for you too, I would encourage you not to give up when you feel embarrassed like that or you've done something wrong. Because no, we all do it. Everybody does it. Everybody makes mistakes in the things that they do in, in regard to Jesus here. The disciples, look at the life, lives of the disciples. Just for those three years, it was a mess. <laughs> Jesus was dealing with all kinds of problems. People trying to be one up over each other and fighting. And watch the chosen, okay? It, I think it really does a great job of showing what a mess the disciples were. Okay? And so keep going. Keep learning. 
even if you make major mistakes, because you only lose if you quit. Don't quit. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your rebuke. When we're on the wrong side, when we're setting up a trap, a hindrance to the cross, Lord, reveal it to us. Show us. Help us to not continue being that. Lord, we thank you that you're so loving that you're willing to say harsh words to us sometime, to wake us up from our slumber, that we've been thinking about the things of man instead of the things of God. And Lord, forgive us when we do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.